Beautiful singing. Good to see y'all. It is good to see y'all. All right. Um, hey, we've been in a series looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. Today we come to perhaps one of the most well-known, most beloved of Jesus' parables, the parable of what's called the prodigal son. That term prodigal um, is not used by Jesus in this story at all. He calls the son young. He, the, the one that's the prodigal son. He calls him young, he calls him dead, and he calls him alive, um, and he calls him lost. But he never calls him prodigal. So you're like, well, where does the term prodigal come from? Looked it up in the dictionary, right? And the dictionary said that the term prodigal, I thought it meant rebellious. I kind of figured it meant wayward. But the word prodigal actually means wasteful. This is the story of the wasteful son. So somewhere along the line in church history, somebody attached this label the prodigal son to this parable and it's stuck and so we'll stick with this ourselves as well today um there are three main characters in this story there's this character of the father who represents our father in heaven uh there's the younger son the one who rebels and then there's the older brother who does everything that his father asks him to do but struggles with the kind of um, excitement, the you know, kind of enthusiasm that the father feels when this younger, more or not more, just irresponsible son comes home. And so what I, my plan is with this parable is that I'm going to take two weeks to cover this parable because honestly we want to eat lunch sometime today. Um, and so what we're going to do is today we're going to look at the younger son and how the father interacts with him. And then next week we'll take a look at the older son and the struggles that he's having and uh, talk about um, what difference that makes to you and I. So our text for today, a little different than what's in your bulletin. I made a little change early this morning. I get here pretty early, and sometimes that results in a rewrite of the sermon, which is what happened today. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, and we're going to read the part of the story where the son comes home. So we're reading kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the moments of joy, the moments of elation, as this younger son returns home to his dad. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 15, we'll be reading verses 22 and 24. This is the homecoming part of the story. Here we go. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Verse 34, for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You may be seated. Uh, before we get into uh, this particular text, I want to point out that this story is preceded, this parable is preceded by two other stories, and they're all three told in succession. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep, and then the next parable is the parable of the lost coin, and then we get the parable of the lost son. These are intended to be taken as a whole. I don't, I'm not planning on covering the lost sheep and the lost coin, and part of the reason why is because the themes, what's being taught in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin are also taught in the lost son, so we're going to get the material from the lost sheep, lost coin in this parable today. There are two themes that occur in all three of these parables. Let me point these out. We've got a little slide for you here. Theme number one is the intensity of concern for what is lost. In the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd is intensely concerned to find the sheep that has wandered off. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman searches high and low through her house, grabs a candle, is walking around through the house in the, in the middle of the evening, in the middle of the night, or whenever it is, and she continues to search. She won't stop searching until she finds that lost coin. 
Um, And then we finally get to the parable of the lost son, where the father watches down the road, hoping to spy his son coming over the hill. So that's theme number one, is the intensity of concern to locate what was lost and retrieve it so that it can be found. The second theme in all three of these parables is that when what is lost is found, there is an intense joy. There is abundant celebration that is released when the son is found or when the sheep is found. I mean, the, the, lost, the shepherd goes and grabs his friends and says, hey, look, I have found this sheep that I've been out searching for. George has finally come back. We're, we're so thrilled to have him back. And then the woman, she grabs her neighbor. She tells all of her neighbors, come on over and look, I found this coin that I had lost. And then, of, of course, as we just read, when the lost son comes home, the prodigal son, the father, has this great big old party and big celebration. So those are two themes that are consistent through all three of these parables. We'll see those play out here in our story today. Um, let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to start at verse 11. That's the beginning of the parable of the prodigal son. It says, And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. Verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So according to the laws of Moses, people were required to give a portion of their inheritance to their male children, to their sons. And it was supposed to be divided up amongst those children. So if you had five sons, the eldest of those sons, everybody would get one-fifth, but then the eldest son would get a double portion. So it would be like one-sixth, and then the eldest gets a two-sixth, I guess you call that, or one-third, however you want to work that out. But in any case, um, that's what happens. So in this story, we've got two sons, right? We've got the older son, the younger son. So this guy's going to divide his inheritance according to the laws of Moses between these two. So everybody's going to get not half, everybody's going to get a third, but the oldest son will get two, a double portion, so he'll get two-thirds, the youngest will get one-third. I hope you follow my math there. Um, so I, I was a little struck when I read through this this week um, that why didn't the dad suspect what was going on? Did that not strike you as odd? Because the son comes to his father and he says, hey, dad, I want my share of the inheritance. Dad's not even gone yet, right? What, what are you doing here? Well, according to the laws of Moses, it was allowed, it was permitted, and there were various reasons for this, for them to go ahead and divide up the inheritance before the dad was, uh, had passed. And there were some strings attached with that. That's neither here nor there. But the point is the dad goes ahead and goes forward with this. But I thought, well, why, why does he do that? Why doesn't he just hold back? Why doesn't he wait for a younger son who seems like he might waste it to mature a little bit? Maybe we'll put a couple more years on this young man before he goes out and does what he's going to do with it. Well, this is Jesus' story. This is what the dad does. I'm just going to go with it, okay? So verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. So the younger son did what he was scheming to do, right? It says not many days later. It wasn't like he waited a couple of months or a couple of years and then had this idea. This was his plan all along. So it says not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Uh, We learn later that at least some of his money was wasted on harlots. Down in verse 30, the older son says to the father about his younger brother, but when this son of yours came home, dad, after having devoured your property, that is after he had used up all of his inheritance with prostitutes, so that's at least part of this reckless living that this younger son was engaged in. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, that means when he blew everything, he had blown through it all, it says a severe famine arose in the country where he was living, and he began to be in need. So this younger son has wasted. He has blown through his inheritance, 
everything that his dad had worked all these years to acquire, this younger son has now taken his portion of that and gone and just blown right through it. He's off in a distant land. He doesn't know anybody. Likely the only friends he has are his drinking buddies. Likely the only friends that he has are his gambling buddies. And now he's run out of money, and so all those buddies are you know, off finding somebody else to carouse with. And so he's left with nothing, and he's in this foreign land. In this foreign land, in this foreign land, they're having a famine. So the only work that he can find is slopping some local farmer's pigs. It says in verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed his pigs. Verse 16, So desperate is this guy that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. So this fellow becomes so desperate, he becomes so hungry that he's looking at the hog trough and he's thinking to himself, boy, that looks yummy, right? So that, that's kind of the, where he's at. This guy has hit his proverbial bottom. For a Jewish boy to be, this is about as low as you can possibly go. Pigs were considered unclean animals by the Jews. They didn't eat barbecue. It wasn't until Acts chapter 10, I believe it was, that Peter was told by the Lord, hey, you go ahead and eat that pork sandwich and enjoy it. But until then, up until that point, the Jewish people were supposed to be uh, hands off of the pig, uh, the pork. And so here's this young Jewish boy, um, because of his folly, has lost everything. He's living at the very edge of existence, and he's slopping these unclean animals. It says, end of verse 16, no one gave him anything. I'm sure the folks locally had figured out what this guy had done. And they'd watched him. They were happy to take his money. You want to give us your money? We'll take your money. And so when he'd gone through all of his money, it was like, well, here's the, here's the fruits of all that you've been doing. And so they just allowed it to happen. This guy has finally reached his bottom. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, that means when he came to his senses, it dawned on him, why am I living like this? I, I mean, what am I doing here? looking at the hog trough and thinking, oh, that looks yummy. That's where dinner's going to come from, right? He's thinking, I can do better than this. I don't need to live like this anymore. Again, this guy has reached his proverbial bottom. He's gotten sick and tired of being, just making sure y'all were listening. Verse 18, here's his plan. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's a Jewish reference to God, to say that he sinned against heaven. He's saying, I sinned against God. He recognizes that it's not just his dad that was aggrieved, but his offense was against God in heaven as well. This boy is beginning to own his actions. Do you see that? He's beginning to realize, you know what? I'm where I am because of what I have done. Verse 18, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This younger, wasteful son is not coming back home. See this in the verse. He's not coming back home in hopes of being restored. That, that's not his intention. That's not why he's come back home. He doesn't think that by coming home and apologizing to my dad, I'm going to get my bed back in the house. I'm going to get my room back. He has no expectation like that. This is not yet another scheme of his. This is true biblical repentance. This is a young man who is owning his behavior, a young man who realizes the full weight of his folly and the full weight of the hurt that he has brought into the lives of people who love him. He plans to tell his dad, verse 19, treat me as one of the hired servants. In other words, 
put me out in your field, let me work, because that's what I should be doing now. I, should, I shouldn't, there's no way that you can invite me back into the house. Put me out in the field, let me, let me work, let me live in one of your barns. Dad, you won't even know that I'm on the property. That's kind of where this guy's at. He offers no excuses. He makes no appeal to his status as a son of a household. Entitlements are absent from his remarks. This guy is not sorry that he got caught. This guy is not feeling sorry for himself. This guy is not blame-shifting, blaming other people. Rather, this guy is gripped with sorrow. It has finally dawned on him what his reckless actions and his hurtful behavior have caused, not just in his own life, but in everyone around him. Verse 20. Jesus includes a beautiful detail here. Verse 20. And he arose... And came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, so sun comes walking off, and maybe it's early in the morning, I don't know, sun's not even quite coming up yet, sky's beginning to get a little blue, he sees the silhouette of his, little, of his son way off in the distance, it says, and the father, it says, he ran to go find, to, to, to run, he ran to go see his son. You know, this dad had probably come out off the front porch of that house many times, over the past number of months or years, looking off in the distance like that, hoping to see a little silhouette of his son. Perhaps when he went out to meet the delivery truck driver and signed for the package, he looked off, stole a glance into the distance. When he'd head to town, he'd go to the end of the driveway. He'd have to turn to the left to go toward town, but then he'd also look off to the other side, hoping maybe he would steal a view of his son. Friends, lost children are never forgotten by their parents. And he, and let me tell you, God our Father has dealt with more than his share of lost and rebellious children. The fact that Jesus can tell this story with such accuracy and such comprehension of what the Father was feeling tells us that the Godhead knows what this feels like. The Godhead has been there before. Friends, don't ever think that your God does not care about your lost or rebellious child. That is a lie from the devil. God is right in this with you. This story demonstrates how intensely concerned the father is for rebellious or wayward children. And God wants to bring them back home. Middle of verse 20, when the father saw the son, he felt compassion, it says, and he ran to his son. Friends, that is not a, the picture of a cold or disinterested father. Again, that's that father that's been coming down those steps day after day, looking off into the distance, hoping, hoping that he would see his son. That's a father that's been praying for months and years and has wept many tears, hoping that his son would return to his senses. It says, verse 20, he runs to his son, he embraced him, he kissed him, down to verse 24. The father exclaims to his household, this my son was spiritually dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Um, that is our parable for today, the story of the lost son who comes to his senses and returns home. And what a beautiful story it is, right? It's a beautiful story. I told the guys before church today, I said, hey, this is, this is, this is great preaching I get to do today, right? This is not some kind of negative stuff judgment stuff this is a story of coming home this is a story of repentance this is a story of being restored what a wonderful story it is 
So let's stop here for a moment and ask the question that we ask every week around here. It's our most important question. That question is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, you know what? I live in the real world. This is just a story. I mean, I've got real problems to deal with. I've got real people. I've got rebellion that I'm dealing with. What difference does any of this make to me? Well, it's a great question. Let's see if we can answer it. Some of us can relate to this story because we have behaved like the younger son. We've engaged in our share of reckless living. We've drunk in much of what the world has to offer. We came to our senses, tried to turn things around. Others of us, maybe we haven't flown off the rails kind of like this younger son did, but nevertheless, we've all struggled with sin. Some of it occasional, some of it's become habitual. And wherever we land on that spectrum, the question is, how do we patch things over? How do we come back home when we've been engaged in sinful behavior? Is there a way back for those that are lost? And what this story teaches is how we can get back, how we can be restored when we've been off in sin. The Bible calls the way back repentance. What I'd like to do with the time I have remaining is to spell out what true biblical repentance looks like, and then you see if that's what you did to be restored. If you see if like, that's what you might attempt, what you want to try to get back from a place of being lost. Three things here that define true biblical repentance. Number one, a truly repentant person admits that what they did was wrong. Notice what this younger son says to his father. Look at verse 21 with me again. He says, I have what? Sinned. He doesn't call what he did misconduct. He doesn't call what he did, I was, I was off, I made some mistakes. He doesn't say, you know, God, I was, or Father, I was off having an unlucky streak. He says, Father, I have sinned. That's what I was engaged in. That's what I was doing. I was involved in stuff that is evil. I was involved in stuff that was morally wrong. Not, not, well, you know, it was, it was, some of it was good, some of it wasn't. No, I was doing the wrong thing. That's what I was doing. Friends, if we want to experience restoration and mercy, the first step is admitting what we have been doing is wrong. Number two, the second step of true biblical repentance is to offer no excuses. Look back at verse 21. He says, key word here, I have sinned. He didn't say, you know that group of guys I was hanging out with, they put me up to it. And I was under a lot of pressure. The Lord, I mean, you know, Father, you know of the childhood that I had. He says, you know what? God gave me a free will. And despite all the pressures and circumstances of my life, I made the decision to do what I did. I have sinned. Friends, that's a second step toward true biblical repentance. To take full responsibility by saying, I have done this. When our girls were younger, they would sometimes get to fussing with one another. I don't know if y'all have ever experienced that as parents before. They're in the back seat. You hear a little tussle going on. And then the last one that said something, maybe got a little bit too loud, that's the one that gets the, you know, the swat or whatever it is and back there. And what is it they say when you call them down? They say, well, so-and-so made me do it, or so-and-so started it, right? As my mama used to always say, hey, look, two wrongs don't make a... There you go. Y'all heard that too. Friends, true biblical repentance takes full responsibility for our actions by offering no 
excuses. When we're ready to stop offering excuses, to stop blame shifting on other people, hey, we're heading toward the Father. Number three, a truly repentant person sees the heart that they have caused, or the hurt that they have caused other people. This younger son says in verse 21, I have sinned against heaven. Again, that's a reference to God. He recognizes that he's not just grieved his own father's heart. He has grieved the heart of the father in heaven. He says, not only have I done that, but I've also sinned before you. This young man recognizes that his actions, his choices have not just hurt himself. Because lots of times people get caught up in sin and they're like, they think they're just hurting themselves. No, there's a whole host of people that this impacts. There's a whole host of people that fall out all over the place, all over the family, all over friendships, all over the community. What are you kidding yourself that our sin only affects me? I mean, the Lord even said that our sins follow us from generation to generation. Um, and so this third step of repentance recognizes, you know what? I realize the hurt that I have caused is, isn't just in me. I haven't just hurt myself. I've hurt other people around me in my life that care about me. Friends, the world is sorry that it got caught. A truly repentant person is sorry for the hurt that they have caused. The fruits of sin, the pain of sin, never is only contained to the perpetrator. Sin always has a much larger footprint. Friends, this is the way to come back from sin. Number one, admitting that what we've done is wrong. Number two, offering no excuses, but instead taking full responsibility for our actions. And number three, seeing that our actions have not just hurt ourselves, but also the lives of those that we love. When we approach God this way, the correct way, the way of repentance, here's what God does. God greets us with open arms and with mercy. And with forgiveness. When David repented of his sins with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan said, David, your sins have been taken away. You shall not die. When the prophet Isaiah said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. The father brought a live coal from the altar, placed it upon his lips, cleansed him, and said, now go and speak my word to the nations. When the tax collector was in church and he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Jesus said, that man went home right with God. Repentance always activates the mercy and forgiveness of God, but only when we are truly repentant. One last thought. Perhaps you're here today and you've thought to yourself, Gordon, if you only knew, if you only knew what I've done and the places I've been, I don't think you'd say this sermon applies to me. Let me tell you something. This is not my story. I didn't make this story up. This is Jesus' story. This comes straight from the Godhead himself. And what Jesus declares through this story is that we can always return home. God is intensely searching for you. Don't make him wait 
any longer. Give the Father the release of joy that he wants to show by coming home. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for this story. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope that it breathes into the life of the wayward. Lord, if we're honest today, we've all got sin in our life, some of it on occasion, some of it habitual. And Lord, what we need to do today is to walk this road of repentance. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to do it. Help us to see that our lives are worthy of your love. That we can never drift so far that your grace cannot find us. May we be reminded today through these symbols of your broken body and of your shed blood the price you were willing to pay to bring the lost unto yourself. Speak to us. Do business with us today, we pray. In Christ's holy name.